0: Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church podcast. This week we are talking about finding Jesus as our corner piece, and the scripture is found in Matthew 26. We hope you enjoy. Anybody like to put together puzzles? Anybody enjoy putting together puzzles? Yeah. Uh, statistically, that is one out of 30 that likes to put together puzzles in this room. Um, <laughs> Uh, Which I concur, honestly. I'm not a big fan of putting together puzzles. One of the reasons why is it seems like I always get to this place when I'm putting together puzzles where I have like 30 pieces and none of them seem to go together. But there is that moment when you're putting together puzzles, if you're putting them together with a friend or something like that, there's that moment where you find that one piece that seems to like take care of another 10 pieces or 20 pieces or 30 pieces, right? you like that one thing and then everything seems to make sense. Oftentimes it's the corner piece, Right. Uh, if you're if you're working on a puzzle, sometimes the first thing you do is you try to find your corner pieces. So, uh, wouldn't it be great if in life uh, we could find the corner piece? Um, do you ever look at your life and you look at maybe as you search for the meaning of life and what life's all about, and you, you kind of look at the lot your life from ten thousand foot a feet, and you go, uh, you go, man, my life just looks like a lot of randomness. What does my life mean? What is the purpose? Of my life. And from that, from that view above, looking at your life as, as if it were a bunch of puzzle pieces on the table, you go, man, I don't see anything to put all this together. I don't see any meaning or purpose. Um, as we look at life, oftentimes there's problems we're looking to solve, maybe problems, financial problems, marital problems, relationship problems. And when we look at those problems, it looks like a, a, a lot of disjointed pieces. And nothing seems to work together and make sense. There's not a, a flow or a, a coherent idea to bring everything together. Um, wouldn't it be great if there was a way to find the corner piece uh, with the things that we fight through and struggle through in life, and be able to put everything together and have it make sense? Um, as I as I seek to follow Jesus, sometimes that's where where my pursuit seems to be. Is man, I want to follow Jesus. I want to pray pray more effectively with more uh, with more result. I want to see people uh, know Christ and know the love of God with more impact. Um, I want to be someone who pursues God more more consistently by studying scripture and knowing God's words, but but sometimes those things don't don't uh, result in my life like I would like for them to. It just seems like a lot of disjointed pieces, uh, that nothing seems to work together and a lot of inconsistency. And I often am in the place of looking for that corner piece to help everything come together. Well, the good news is, is we're going to look at the, an example from the life of Jesus, and we're going to discover what the corner piece can be um, as we seek to... To take those pieces in life, those disjointed pieces and those problems we're looking to solve and put them together really well. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 26 and we're going to discover some interesting things about a story uh, from the life of Jesus. Now, before I get too deep into this this text and this story, one thing just to be aware of is this story is told in one way or the other in all four of the Gospels. So there are four books that start the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they all tell the story of Jesus from different perspectives, uh, different angles, different ideas. And in that space and in the place of telling the story of Jesus from different, different perspectives, what we end up, what we find is that, uh, that the, the authors tell us, almost like looking at a diamond, different different concepts and different ideas to bring out of these events. We're going to look at mainly at Matthew today, a little bit, some of the others we'll refer to. And the next week we're going to look at how Luke teaches us more expansively from this. So before we read, there's one, one thing I want us to understand is that those, those four stories or those four ideas help us get the whole. So we're going to dig into a little bit of them today and it'll help us. But verse 1, chapter 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all of this, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So This is not the first time Jesus has said something like this, right? The first time Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 16, he says it to his disciples and Peter goes, wait, 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 wait. What did you just say? You're, you're gonna have you're gonna like going to the you're gonna go to a cross. Peter knew what a cross was. He was raised in an era where crosses were used to, to massacre people all the time. Um, it was a, it was such a well known concept of of corporal punishment, severe punishment um, that uh, um, uh, severe severe punishment in the sense of uh, sorry I have lost my train of thought there. Uh, severe punishment and uh, capital punishment, not corporal punishment. Corporal punishment like when you get spanked, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little bit different than that. Um, but capital punishment is well known during this area, well known during this, during this time. So, so Peter knew what he was talking about. When Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross, he went, wait a minute, you're not going to go to the cross. That's, that's not what we had in mind. That's not the idea that we, that we had in our heads when you said, follow us and we'll be, you'll, you'll be the king and, and we're going to like maybe rule with you and reign with you. And you're talking about a cross? Something's not right here. Something's wrong. So that's the first time we hear Jesus, when, when Jesus responds this way or teaches us this way. Uh, about going to the cross, Peter's response is very negative. We're going to see a contrast to that in this text, and we're going to get to learn a little bit how we should respond to knowing and hearing about the cross. Uh, I'll, I'll pause this for a second. As you as you get into this text, think about it from this, from this perspective. Um, if you were in the crowd when Jesus was being uh, put on trial and we were determining whether Jesus should be crucified or not, would you join them in yelling, crucify him, or would you not? And I don't want you to answer that question out loud. I just want you to think about it. I want you to reflect on your response in that moment to the call to crucify Jesus. I want you to think about what maybe the disciples would have said or maybe some of the people who were against Jesus would have said. I want you to think about what Paul might have said or even what God himself might have said that day if he were in that crowd and had the choice to say crucify him or not. But let's keep reading. So we got the idea that Peter had already been through this, disciples had already been through this. We've got that as background. We know that Jesus is now saying in two days I'm going to be crucified. Two days from, from now. Verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Not during the festival, so that so they said, so there won't be any rioting among the people. And then verse 6. And this is where we're really going to dig in. So in that context of Jesus' cross being prophesied by Jesus... We get to verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, a man who had a serious skin disease, and I'm going to pause throughout this to make a few comments to make sure we get it, so we'll pause there in verse, at the end of verse 6. Simon is called Simon the leper. Most people believe he was probably the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, the reason we see that, or the reason we believe that is when you look at John's version of this, John says that they're in the house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. So it's most likely that Simon, is the, Simon the leper is the father of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's just an interesting thing as we compare these two texts together. Um, another, another thing to point out is when you compare it to Luke's version of the story, we find out that Simon was also most likely a Pharisee, if they're the same story, I believe they are, um, that Simon was also a Pharisee. And here is a guy who was at once known as a Pharisee, which was the cream of the crop, the top, top dogs in town, uh, the guys who everybody looked up to, Yeah, tell your kid, hey, you want to be like those Pharisees. That's what Simon had been. That's what he was known as, and now he is known as a leper. Now, it's questionable whether he's been healed at this point. I think it's interesting to reflect on and think about, had Simon been healed by now? Was this Simon the former leper or Simon the leper currently? Uh, We don't know for sure, but it is an interesting thing to think about how Jesus sometimes decides to heal us in our leprosy and sometimes decides to walk through our leprosy with us. Sometimes he decides to take away our suffering and take away our problems and pay our bills and cure us of our diseases, and sometimes he says, I'm going to go through them with you, because this text doesn't make it clear, I believe intentionally, uh, whether Simon actually had uh, been healed of his leprosy. Verse 7, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive fragrant oil. So a lady comes up, most likely Mary, or we believe it's Mary, because John's version of this says it was Mary, the sister of Martha, so Pretty well-known person in the Bible, Mary. Uh, not, there's a bunch of Marys, so don't get this confused with, with Jesus' mom, or even Mary Magdalene, who uh, is well-known. If, if you've read the Bible, watched movies about Jesus, you've probably seen Mary Magdalene show up often. Uh, this is a different Mary, Mary the sister of Martha. Uh, if, if you paid paid attention and read your Bible a lot, you might remember that Mary is pretty famous for one, one moment. It was Mary and Martha Lazarus and a bunch of people in their house, and Jesus was hanging out. He was over there. They were eating dinner, and Martha was busy serving uh, she was very active, and she kind of got ticked off at Mary because Mary was just sitting there kind of round, round everybody else, maybe even in the position she shouldn't have been, reclining t- around the table with all the, all the men as they studied. That would have been un, un, uh, unacceptable during this culture. But Mary, that's where Mary was, and so Martha's like, wait a minute, Mary, don't do that. You need to get involved. You need to help. You need to serve. You need to work. You need to get activated, uh, activated in the ministry, activated on the mission, and Jesus looks at Martha and says, hey, I want to tell you what Mary's doing. Mary's listening to me, and that's the only thing that really matters. And all of life, and all of the earth, and all of the universe—the one thing that matters most, the one thing that matters above all else—is being in a position of where you're hearing and listening to Jesus. And that's who this person is, who is about to um, anoint Jesus with this oil. So it says uh, in, in the text and the translation I have, very expensive fragrant oil. When we look at the other stories, we learn that it was uh, worth three hundred denarii. So a uh, denarii during this time, one denarii was a, an average laborer's day wage. So if you were to go out as an average laborer and earn, earn, your, earn your pay for that day, that's about what you would get. You would get, get one denarius uh, versus, uh, versus 300 denarii. So if we were to extrapolate that, and I, I should have gotten Rick to get his pen and pencil out on this one, but just some basic conceptual math, it's impossible to understand how, what a currency worth then would be worth now. But you can start to conceptualize a little bit of what it would be worth if it was a single day's wage. Because if you think about $15 an hour being about the average pay somebody gets, working eight eight hours a day, then you're talking about 300 of these being worth around $30,000-ish. That's some rough estimates, uh, right, for what it could buy in today's world. This was a very valuable item that Mary had in her hands, that she approached Jesus with. I like the tension it builds there. A woman approached Jesus... With an alabaster jar. And these alabaster jars, most of the times, weren't just like simple jars. They're very ornate, very carefully put together. They looked like something very experienced. And she approached Jesus with this very valuable um, item. Let's pause for a second and think about that. What, what would you think about someone if, if someone donated to our church, to our community, or a church? Let's, let's make it a little bit more generic. A church, a baseball card worth $30,000. What would you think? What would you think if somebody maybe d- uh, devoted or ge- gave a painting to us maybe worth $150,000? Maybe someone gave us a car, a famous car. Will show me some cool car videos earlier and car pictures. Or maybe somebody gave us a famous car, a well-known car that was maybe worth $500,000. As you think about that in the back of your mind, what do you think we should do? D- don't answer. Just reflect. Uh, what do you think we should do with that? Maybe... Conceptualize that a little bit. Then let's keep reading. Right in the middle of verse 7. Because, period, right in the middle of this verse here. She poured it on his head. She broke it open. This very valuable $30,000 treasure. She broke it open and she poured the oil, the fragrant oil, on his head as he was reclining at the table. Uh, When you read the other stories, you discover that she not only poured it on his head, she poured it on his feet as well and wiped his feet they're here. Verse number eight. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. So, as you reflected on what we might would do with a car that somebody gave us or a painting gave us and how we should use that, what was your response mentally? How did you respond to that? I'll tell you how I would have responded to it. It's respond to it the same way that when I was going to a church in, and when I was in college in the Panano, Florida, Church of Mariana, Florida, uh, had been someone had been given them um, uh, money and the only way that money could be used was this is really strange and and by the way I'm not going to come up with some answer in this just so you know I just think it's important for us to get ourselves in the mindset of the disciples here because it's easy pausing for a second to think about it. it's easy just to be critical of the disciples right we're on the outside looking in it's easy to be like these guys are crazy these guys don't know what they're doing this church in Mariana, Florida, somebody had given them a, a, a couple million dollars and that she had only would allow them to uh, put gold on the dome. It was like a church that had a dome. It was like a first Baptist church in town there. had a dome around it. And the only thing they were allowed to use this $2 million was to layer that dome with gold paint. Mind-blowing, right? This is important for us to think about because money and how we spend money, those things that are valuable to us, whether it's money or other things, begin to speak about what our heart wants and what our heart needs, what our heart seeks. The Bible actually says that you can tell where someone's heart is by how they spend their their money, their time, their treasures, what they invest in. You can look and see what's in someone's heart by how they invest, how they give themselves away. Verse number eight. So when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were angry. They were ticked off. This is $30,000, and you're just pouring it over Jesus. He's a good guy and all. I mean, I believe he's the Messiah, but you just poured anointing oil, $30,000 worth of it, onto Jesus. Never ticked off. Why this waste, they asked. Verse 9. This might have been given and sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Sounds reasonable to me. I mean, doesn't it you? I mean, that sounds pretty reasonable. Um, the reason I walked through the exercise of the baseball card and the, uh, and the gold dome is because, I don't know about you, but as I think about those things, I think probably should sell that and give it to the poor. Seems like a reasonable thing to be angry about, frustrated about. So if Jesus challenges this, haven't read to see yet if he did, right? We don't know for sure what he, how he responds to it. We don't know. Some of you reading ahead, you're cheating. You know, it's like we've taken a test. You're supposed to turn your test over, right? But, but if you haven't read this story in a while, if you haven't read it, uh, either way, pause and reflect for, with me for a second. We don't know for sure yet, based on what we've read today together, whether Jesus goes, yeah, that's right. What were you thinking, Mary? That was $30,000, and there's people starving to death out here. What were you thinking? Or whether he goes, Mary, good choice. I wonder what he said. Verse 10. Jesus was aware of this, and he said this to them. Why are you bothering this woman? Mary's always in the middle of people getting rebuked on her behalf. Have you noticed that? Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Let me pause there and just make sure we don't miss something that's really important that we could miss in this text if we're not careful. Jesus isn't saying it's not important to give to the poor, right? Matter of fact, in this one sentence, he implies that that's just an assumed expectation of those who love and follow Jesus. We are to be in a place where, why? Because they're always around us. We are always supposed to be in a place where we're serving and giving and loving to the poor. The question is, is that the corner piece? Verse 11 or verse 12. Explains why her point of oil was so important. Verse 12 By pouring this of oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. What was she thinking about? Something important like taking care of the poor or something even more important? She was thinking about the main thing, she was thinking about the corner piece, she was thinking about the gospel. Verse 13 I assure you. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. Talk about a legacy. Anybody want a legacy? You ever think about what people are going to say about you at your funeral? I do. What are, right, is anybody going to be there? First, first question. Am <laughs> I going to show up. For those who are there, they're going to be crying or cheering. Second question. Third thing is, what are they going to say? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind of legacy do you want to leave for your children? What kind of legacy do you want? What kind of name and reputation do you even want to have as you are living today? What kind of impact on the world do you want to have? Mary, in her choice, chose the right legacy, the right history, the right reputation. I like this text, or I like this verse, because it actually reflects on something. What was Jesus talking about? That Mary's story of anointing would be told wherever the gospel is preached? Jesus was actually, in this moment, prophesying about the reality of Scripture. Because Jesus is saying, where the Gospel is preached, the people will, will believe in the Gospel and become followers of Jesus. And when they believe and become followers of Jesus, they're going to start studying and reflecting on Scripture, meditating on Scripture. And when they do that, part of Scripture, four of the, the, all four Gospels are going to tell the story of Mary, and they're going to learn about how important this moment was. Isn't it amazing that this moment, this is a mundane moment, right? This is two days before Passover. I would get it if this was just Passover, right? This is a mundane moment. So so Passover was a big deal. This is two days days before Passover. Passover is the big deal. It's kind of the the party, the feast. Everybody shows up. Everybody comes over to Grandma's house for Passover. You know, it's kind of that idea. It's like Thanksgiving. For some reason, I have Thanksgiving in my head. Thanksgiving Day is a big deal, right? You clean the house. You get ready, you cook the turkey, you cook the stuff, stuffing. Um, hopefully you can have somebody who loves you enough to deep fry your turkey for you. Um, if you don't, change families. Uh, but, but Thanksgiving Day is the big deal. Two days before Thanksgiving? Is it a big deal? I mean, if I'm at my, at my parents' house two days before Thanksgiving, it's a mundane day. It's a bologna sandwich day, not a turkey dinner thing, right? In this mundane moment, Mary found a way to believe the gospel, to have faith in the gospel, to live out a life that reflected faith in the cross and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse number 14. And then we'll make a few comments. We'll be done. Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. And from that time, he started looking for an opportunity for him. We're going to come back to that at the end. This was a pivotal moment for Jesus. Judas, sorry, Judas. This was a moment of pivot for Judas in his pursuit of following Jesus. Or not. So what's the big takeaway? What's the big idea? Mary in this place made sure she had the right corner piece. She found... The corner piece. And for Mary, the corner piece was the gospel. And the gospel is, just as a reminder and a reflecting moment for us, is that truth, that fact. The word gospel actually means announcement. The the word gospel was very well known during this time. The Greek word used that we translate as gospel. It's a very common word. It wasn't a word that that Christians invented or that was a religious word. As a matter of fact, until Jesus started using it, it wasn't used for religious purposes hardly ever. And it simply meant an announcement. It would have been the word that if you were had your army out in battle um, in three or four cities over or maybe even three or four nations over, days away potentially, and if you won the battle, you would send a herald back to your city saying, we won the battle, we won the battle, the battle is over. That's what the word gospel would have been used for during this time, an announcement of good news, an announcement of, of a good thing that had happened, a good event. And that's the gospel at its core The gospel is an event. It's a fact of history. That's important because you can't do a fact of history. You can't do an announcement. You can either believe it or not believe it. Oftentimes we try to make the gospel something that it's not. The gospel is simply a fact of history. It's an event. It's an announcement of an event. That's what the gospel is. And we try to make the gospel something we can do. The gospel's not better teaching than the Old Testament. Like... Maybe this is, the Old Testament was, was okay teaching. It was the 1.0 version. It was the beta version of, of some good stuff about God. But, but the gospel is the New Testament. It's the new teaching about Jesus. It's 2.0. It's like the, new, it's like the uh, iPhone 8S or something like that. That doesn't exist. And uh, marked it off the record for public uh, consumption. Um, you know, it's like the new thing. It's better. It's cooler. It's like, man, Jesus really fixed it up. I had a friend tell me one time, Um, um, uh, A Muslim friend told me, he's like, man, we just need an Islam which you guys had with Jesus. Jesus took all that stuff in the Old Testament that was pretty good and he made it better. It's like, yeah, that's not it. The the gospel isn't just taking some teaching in the Old Testament about how to be a better person and better teaching. It's not a new law or a better law or a new idea in the sense of, of some commands. If you do these commands, these are better commands than the old commands, right? That's not the gospel. The gospel is an announcement of a fact. And it's this fact. It's the fact that everything that God had planned for Jesus, he provides for you. Because everything that God in his wrath had planned for you, Jesus took on himself. Everything that you deserve, in comparison to God, being one who is in rebellion against God, everything that you deserve, Jesus took on himself on the cross so that you could have everything that God and his love prepared for his son, Jesus. That's the fact, the event of the gospel. That's the announcement. That's the good news that the God who created the universes, the God that that is infinite and eternal and a a lover of all, he is the one who now treats you as a son, a perfect, beloved, righteous son. And that's the announcement of the gospel. He can do that because of the cross. And our response to an announcement, our response to a promise is faith. You can't, do, you can't do a promise. You can't respond to a promise by doing something. You can only respond to a promise by faith. Mary is saying that that's the cornerstone. And that's really interesting because as we reflect on what Christianity is, some people have said no to Christianity because they, they think they know what it is, but they're actually saying no to something that doesn't even, isn't even real. Because Christianity isn't about doing some new things or doing things better. That's why I don't know if you noticed this, but when I got up this morning to do the announcements, I kind of said something wrong and I had to, like, change it. The guy's like, that's not, that's not truth. I hope you caught it. If you caught it, it was a test for you. I was seeing if I could catch it. <laughs> the truth is, is Christianity is not about you becoming better. The, Christ, the truth of Christianity is that Jesus was better for you. He was better in your place, and our response is faith. So we can have faith in the gospel, faith in what Jesus has done for us. That's what we do with an announcement. We either believe it or we don't believe it. Or we have the alternatives that are represented in this text. And I'll show you to them real quickly. So instead of the corner piece, what do, what do we try to replace it with? Have you ever, um, when you're putting together a puzzle, like, think you found that last piece or one of the pieces that fit in a hole? But it's not, it's almost right. I mean, almost. It looks right. You promise, you, can you see it? You've got the puzzle laying on the table and you got four different holes you got this one piece. And put it on there, and it just kind of, kind of fits. And what do you do? I don't know what you, what you guys do. But I start beating, trying to pound it in, and then it ends up like all crooked and torn up. And then when you finally put it in the place, it goes. It's like, like mangled looking. So, in this story, we're going to see some alternatives to having faith in the gospel, and those alternatives are represented in the disciples' response and Judas' response specifically. So in this text, in this version of it, we notice in verse number 8, when the disciples... What's on the end of the word disciple? An S. So when the disciples saw saw it, they were indignant. So they were all a little ticked off in this moment, right? They were all a little bit angry about what was going on. Why was this not sold to the poor? Their response to instead of having faith in the gospel, faith in Jesus to bring us close to God was morality and religion. That was how they responded. Now if you look at John chapter 7, I'm sorry, John, the, uh, the last, uh, last couple chapters of John, and you look at the version of this, I think it's actually John chapter uh, uh, 16, uh, you look at the version of this that John tells, and you look at it later if you want to, what you find is that John tells us a little bit more about Judas's specific response. He takes the, the microscope and digs in a little bit more on Judas to help us understand how he responded. And Judas actually is ticked off about it for a very specific reason. Judas is ticked off in this moment because he's used to managing the money. All the money goes through Judas. Anybody? Um, sometimes we don't realize this. Or I don't think we, we are careful on how we pay attention to it. Jesus, Jesus had people donate things to him. And his ministry had things, had people donate money to him and finances to him. So in that space, Judas was the one who took the money, and he managed it. And what John tells us is that Judas was actually stealing money from the organization. And Judas was ticked off not because he had a moral cause or he was very religious. He was ticked off because of he was stealing the money. He was pocketing it, right? He was trying to own some of the resources over here. He's skimming off the top. And here he saw $30,000. that could have gone into the treasury and he could have gotten his cut. He, got, he could have pocketed a little bit of it and he's ticked off. His response, instead of being a moral and a religious response, was immoral and rebellious. So we see in this place an opportunity to reflect on how we can respond to the gospel. We either respond to it in faith, in the gospel, faith in Jesus, or we respond to it in faith in ourselves. And when we respond to the gospel by having faith in ourselves, it comes out in those, one of those two ways. Either morality and religion or immorality and rebellion. Does that make sense? Alright, that's good, thank you. So I'm going to say it again. And then I'll explain a little bit further. I think as we keep going, we'll, we'll explain it further. So, as we look at the gospel, the gospel is a challenge, a call to us to believe, to have faith in Jesus making us acceptable to God. And in making us acceptable to God, we have all that God intended for Jesus. We have all the favor of God, we have the presence of God, we have the closeness of God. I mean, get this the one who is the source of all joy and all peace, all true joy and all true peace the one who is the the creator of the universe, now we have unadulterated, unfiltered, hundred-proof access to God the Father because of Jesus. Unlimited. And nothing we do can change that. On our very best day, we have that. On our very worst day, we have that. We can't limit God's favor and God's blessing and God's presence and God's God's goodness towards us. We can't limit that by by our behaviors or we can't make it more by having better, better behavior or less by having worse behavior? That's faith in the gospel, right? There's the alternative that we have is to have faith in ourselves. There's only two choices, either faith in Jesus or faith in yourself. Those are the two choices. So the faith in ourselves is apparent or reveals itself in these two ways, the two ways we see here. The disciples, most of them except for Judas, had faith in morality and religion. I'll explain that a little bit more in detail in a second. And then Judas himself had faith in immorality and rebellion. So let's talk about what that means a little bit more, and maybe it will make more sense. So as, as the disciples represent faith and morality and religion, what does that look like? Well, here's how it looks like in our lives. We believe that because of our performance, we are better, and we can make ourselves more acceptable to God. And that God gives us more, oftentimes this is the temptation we, we are in. We believe that God gives us more good things because we're better people. Or God gives us less good things because we're not better people. That is the temptation to not believe the gospel. It, looks at, it comes out in life in all the I am better than moments. Right? I am better than the guy who's driving in front of me because I would never get into the other lane without using my turn signal. Right? I'm better than him and it, and this is funny but it's true right I am better than him because I wouldn't do that I am better than the than the married couple down the road because I don't I don't scream and holl, holler at each other like they do I am better than this guy because of the kind of movies he goes to or she goes to I am I, here's the way it looks here's how it sounds to, to me and most Christians and how it sounded coming out of my mouth sometimes Man, did you, did you see that guy? He says, he's a, he says he's a Christian. But did you hear the language coming out of his mouth? <sighs> we want to feel like we are better. than We're looking for any excuse to say, I am better. I am more acceptable. All the while, when we, when we shine a light on ourselves, we discover we're just as desperate for God's grace as anyone else. So so we have the choice to either believe the gospel or believe in our own morality or our own religion. The disciples here were going, hey, let's do something religious. Let's do something important, something that's good. And we're going to look at next week where these things fall in line, right? We're going to look at where these come from next week and how these things do come out of a heart that's on fire, a heart that's in love with Jesus. But the temptation is to start there, to start with something other than the corner piece and have faith in our morality and our religion. The second option is uh, that we have faith in immorality and rebellion. So Judas's approach was just to get more money. Because in money he was building his security, he was finding his pleasure, and he was trying to fill up a space in his being that God created to be filled by himself alone. Augustine, I believe it was, as either Augustine or Pascal just decided to use this, uh, said that all people have inside of their heart a... A shape, a God-shaped vacuum. And we try to fill that heart, that God-shaped vacuum with all kinds of things and all kinds of pleasures. And none of those can satisfy why we were created or who we we're created to be. And that pursuit is an endless, empty pursuit because nothing can satisfy what God created us to truly experience joy from, and that is Himself. We were created to find pleasure in God. I will say as we think about it, even, even reflect on what all we find pleasure in. And by the way, it's good to find pleasure in things. I even think that God gives us pleasure to teach us what finding pleasure means as we have good food, as we, as we watch a good movie, as we look at great art, as we make tour of the Rockies. He gives us that experience of pleasure to teach us what pleasure is so that as we transfer our pursuit of pleasure towards Him, we know what it means to truly receive pleasure from God. Because following Jesus... Is very similar to finding pleasure in other things on the earth. It's just finding it in the ultimate thing. So here's a way to reflect on that. The, the morality in religion was I am better. In this space, it's a way to reflect on it is, is, is what do you have to have to have happiness, to have pleasure, to have joy? What do you have to have? It's not wrong to find pleasure in a good meal. Not at all. You should. I think that's what the other idea just implied. If it didn't, if it didn't imply that... It's good. It's good to find pleasure in the meal. It's, it's good to find pleasure maybe in a beautiful piece of art or the stars at night, right? It's good to find pleasure in those things. But if you have to have them to have pleasure, they have, be, they have transferred for being something that's a source of joy that maybe through you might see God, and now they've become a source of joy that you have to have in a replacement of God. And by definition, that's an idol. God commands us to seek joy in all the pleasures that are that are pure in life, right? The pure and holy pleasures that are there. We are commanded to seek them and have joy in them and enjoy the things that he's provided for us. But the temptation that we have is to have faith in those things to provide for us the peace and the joy and the wholeness that can only be found in God. if can only be found through the gospel. And those are the two options. And now that's so we're going to return to it, we're going to return to it now. Verse number 14 was a very very interesting space because it says that this was a pivot moment for Judas. Judas, for this point, I guess we can kind of he'd Watch, I mean, imagine what he'd seen. Every miracle that Jesus had performed, Judas had watched. Every teaching that Jesus had given, Judas had heard. Judas was there when Peter walked on the water. He watched that. This, for Judas, was a pivot moment. He pivoted away and pursued his his anti-faith in the gospel. In his case, the case of immorality and rebellion and pursuing pleasure. And replacement of pursuing that pleasure in Jesus. That was his pivot moment. So how do we know when we're about to experience a pivot moment? Well, just ask you a few questions to think about. What is the thing that causes you to turn away from Jesus? Nothing. I'm okay. not talking about the big stuff. That may be relevant for you. You know, there may be people who are listening to this right now who have turned away from Jesus because you didn't want Jesus to be somebody who told you what to do. I'm not going to follow this guy if he's going to tell me I'm wrong. I'm not gonna follow this guy if he's gonna tell me I think wrong or I believe wrong or I'm not gonna follow, I'm not gonna follow Jesus if he's gonna teach things that are counter-cultural or kind of make me uncomfortable or not accepted in the world, you know, because we're in the world today, kind of teaches things that are a lot different than what we what, what this teaches. I'm not gonna follow. Maybe that's a pivot moment, and that's a big thing for some people. I'm talking about the smaller things on a daily basis. What causes us to pivot away as followers of Jesus, as believers in the gospel in a moment, and we live in that space for maybe the majority of our life, what causes us to pivot away from the gospel in the day-to-day life? I think there's a lot of ways to answer that question, probably and possibly. I don't have any ideas, because the only ideas I have are what I see here. And The only thing I see here, the only thing that makes sense to my mind, I think some good questions we could ask each other maybe during discussion, but in this text, what ticks you off? Judas and the disciples got ticked off. What makes you angry? Tell you why that's so important. Because I find that I get angry. I get indignant. That's the way it translated the text here. I get indignant in areas of my life where I am Lord and Jesus is not. Sometimes it's because of my religious moral causes. Over and against the gospel and the mission of Jesus through the cross and through grace. Sometimes it's because my kids are saying something and they're ticking me off because they're making me not look like a good father because I'm so obsessed oftentimes with my reputation. You see, when you've embraced the gospel, you are free from all of those things. When you've embraced the gospel and in the gospel you are, you have unstoppable, unlimited access to the one who provides all joy and all peace. That's what you have in the gospel. And I know I've said it, and I've said it every, we probably say it every Sunday, but I mean, we can't say it enough because it's life. You are, un, you are unable to affect how much of God you have now. Unable to affect how much of his favor and how much of his goodness. The one who is in control of every molecule on this entire earth, who, he, who loves you and has all things intended for your good, you can't do anything to change how he treats you. Anything. And he only intends good for you. And he alone is a source of complete, full, pure joy and peace and goodness and all good things. Every gift comes from him. Every good gift does. And you can't do anything to stop him from loving you. You can't do anything to limit his love for you. You can't do anything to decrease or lessen how much he wants to bless and favor you. Nothing. Because you're in Jesus. Jesus. You're in Christ. You're hidden in Christ. Your righteousness or your unrighteousness does not exist anymore before God. I know I'm excited, but you know why? Because I'm excited. (laughs) Is that not the best news on the planet? And because that's true, I don't have to seek for my wife to be my source of ultimate pleasure. I can take pleasure in her. We can give each other pleasure. But if I didn't have it, I wouldn't need any more pleasure because I've got complete pleasure in God. I don't have to get in, my biggest financial problem as a human. So I'm still I'm still working this out. My biggest financial problem as a human is I like to eat out too much. I'm serious. Man, if we had all the money that we'd used on eating out and had invested that in a 401k better or something like that, i would be a little bit better off this morning. I might be wearing a nice shirt. I might have had like a shirt from somewhere other than Old Navy rolling up there this morning. Why do I eat out? Because I have too much pursuit of pleasure. In good food, too much, I know I did. it's okay to enjoy a good meal right, but I if I was where in the gospel, pursuing the pleasure and joy of God, like I, like I see the Bible and I see the story calling me to I would have so much pleasure and joy that I find in God that I might not ever have to eat out to find pleasure I mean I couldn't eat out right, or even take pleasure and eat out it just means I wouldn't have to anymore does that make sense? Think about how that changes your finances. I, one, one more quick illustration. In the last couple days I've been reflecting on this, it's helped me see how I have a big problem in my parenting. In my parenting, I have gotten convinced that my kids need certain experiences to have a complete and full life. Maybe it's the schools. Uh, maybe it's the experiences they have a part of. Maybe it's the grades they have, the job they could get. Maybe even it's things like Disney World. Or whether we get to go, my family always went to the beach every single summer. So in my mind, to have a complete and full life, every kid's got to go to the beach for four days every single summer. (laughs) Do y'all feel that way? So There's something like that in your life, right? Something like that. That's not true. If a full and complete life is found in Christ. So now as a parent, my responsibility, my main responsibility, my ultimate responsibility is to help my children discover a full and complete life by believing and living in the the pleasure and the grace of the gospel. We might not get to go to Disney. We might not get to go to the beach. I might not get to go eat out and eat some sushi, even though I love it. I might not get that great bottle of wine. I may not get to have the perfect life of my dreams. But my, my joy in life will not be touched It will not be added to or lessened. Because through Jesus, I have the God of this universe right next to me all the time. That's the corner piece. Everything else comes from the corner piece that we see in the gospel. Let's pray.